Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. That song we just sang, Man of Sorrows, has a special place in my heart, a special place in this church. Uh, Man of Sorrows was a song that we inaugurated the birth of our church to, Easter of 2016. Uh, in our living room, we took communion together, we sang Man of Sorrows, and we became a church. And it's been, uh, what has it been, a three-year journey of seeking to make disciples and proclaim the gospel, and, and here we are today not trying to pretend to be something we're not. We're trying to rest ourselves on the truth of God's word to the best of our ability, center our lives and our hearts and our worship and, and everything about our life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and that's where we're at today. We're, we're in the fifth week of a series through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, uh, last time I looked, there was one, one left, one gospel transformation Bible I'll try to make a note to bring more uh, on the bar in the room off to my left here. We'd love to gift you with that. Uh, I think reading God's Word and being in God's Word is vital to learning and growing as a follower of Jesus. So if you don't own a copy of God's Word, uh, that's our gift to you. We'd love to, to bless you with a copy of God's Word. Uh, the passage, 1 Samuel chapter 5, is in the middle of a three-chapter section where our, the main character, or one of the main characters that we see throughout the book, Samuel, is not listed. This is a story that goes into, or maybe the, the, the highlighting character, the author, is God and the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, last week, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the Israelites were going to war against the Philistines. They lost, and they said, they got together, and the elders asked, you know, why has the Lord defeated us? They say, I know, we'll get the ark. If we have the ark, then we will win. And what they were essentially doing was utilizing the ark. They were treating God as some sort of idol that could be manipulated and forced. They were treating the ark as something that it wasn't. And they went out to, to war again. They got slaughtered. 30,000 foot soldiers died. Uh, the two sons, Eli's sons, died in the battlefield. The ark was captured. And it was really a depressing story last week, uh, if, if you can remember uh, when Eli, the, the, the priest, learns about what's happened, he falls over and breaks his neck and dies. Uh, his his daughter-in-law has a, what might have been a premature birth and dies in, in childbirth. She, she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And, and where that story left off in the, the end of, of 1 Samuel chapter 4, it says, And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark has been captured. That's where we pick up here in 1 Samuel chapter 5. So uh, if you're with me, uh, we can read along. My plan is to read through the passage, provide some commentary, and then we can get after those questions that are, that are in the handout, the three questions that are geared to help us make sense of the passage and, and utilize as a tool in our study of God's Word. Uh, and I hope that as we go through this passage that, that you will have a similar experience that I've had as I've studied this passage. To me, this passage is like you know one of your favorite action movies or the, the highlight reels of sport. Uh, hits or home runs that you like to see. I mean, you know that they're coming, right? But they're awesome every time. And, and what God does in this moment is he, he demonstrates his superiority. Uh, this, is, this is would be a highlight reel of God's showing his superiority over, over everyone else. So let's, let's get into the passage, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. <coughs> when the Philistines captured the ark, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, Ebenezer was, was where the battle was faced last 
uh, last chapter, in chapter 4, that's where the battle of the Israelites and the Philistines was. Ebenezer, remember, was about 20 miles west of Shiloh, which was the, the central kind of religious hub of Israel. That's where the, the Ark of the Covenant was, that they took it from Shiloh. And from Ebenezer to Ashdod would have been south about 30 miles. So that Ashdod was a main city of the Philistines. It was right kind of on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It would have been like uh, from us maybe to Ording or Graham, somewhere around there, just about 30 miles, uh, that the Philistines are taking this ark to their city. And it says in verse 2, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now there's some cool uh, repetition of phrasing here as similar to chapter 4. So the Philistines are described as taking and bringing. They brought the ark and they, they set it up beside Dagon. They took and they brought. And, and this is very similar to the language that the narrator told us in chapter 4, how the Israelites took the ark from Shiloh and brought it. And I think what the narrator is trying to do in this moment is, is highlight or bring to mind the fact that the same mistake the Israelites made in kind of the irreverent way they were treating the ark of the covenant was about to be a similar way that the Philistines were treating it, taking and bringing and setting up besides Dagon. And as they set it up besides Dagon, they're treating the ark of God like an idol, that's how, kind of how they're treating it, although it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't an idol or a god. It, it kind of symbolized God's presence and the covenant. But they're treating it like an idol. And in those times, it was very common for the victors, the victorious nation, to take the people's god that they captured or defeated and put it up in their temple as a way of saying, ha ha, our god is better. Right? I, I don't know if they use the, that language. <laughs> I just kind of imagine Bart Simpson saying that, but... It was a way of showing that their God is better. Like if you were, to, if you were able to capture the enemy's God, if, if you lost your God as, as, a, as a people, as a nation, it was a way of you were totally humiliated. You were defeated. And setting it up beside Dagon was a way of showing that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is subordinate to Dagon. Dagon is more powerful. He's more in control. Uh, he's better. Dagon is thought to be a, a kind of the main chief god of the Philistines. He might have been associated with agriculture or fertility. I don't know what the statue looked like. We, we see that he has heads, heads, head, and hands uh, here in a second. But then see, look what happens in verse 3. So they take the Ark of, the god, of God, they set it up besides Dagon in his temple, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold... Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. <coughs> now, as we can see further on, they, they take him and they pit him, pick him back up. We don't really, the, the narrator doesn't say what they might have been thinking, right? They, maybe they thought, and can we just picture this for a second, right? Maybe there was a draft in the temple. It's a really strong draft, just hit the temple at the right way, then, it, then he fell down, right? Maybe there was a weird kind of, trembling in the ground, and this thing was maybe top-heavy, it fell over. Maybe I can imagine the, the elders of Ashdod getting together and thinking, oh, youths, right? They must have vandalized, <laughs> right? They, they might think it, they might have thought it was a coincidence. They just pick it back up, seemingly without having doing anything. But why was he face down in front of, why was Dagon face down in front of the ark? Pretty, face down as a universal symbol and posture for submission and surrender. 
Though the Philistines thought that their god Dagon was superior, first and sincere, he's bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Now we see Dagon's not just fallen face down. There's more that's happened here. Doesn't seem like a coincidence at this point. The fact that that the narrator describes his head and his hands are cut off and they're lying on the threshold. Uh, This doesn't seem like some sort of accident or, or someone's messing around with Dagon here. God is the one who is doing this. God is the one who's showing his superiority and his might over Dagon. And God is showing in this moment that Dagon has not only been humiliated, but by his head being cut off and his hands being cut off, he's totally disabled. So the head was a symbol of knowledge and, and wisdom. Right? Without your head, you can't think. The hands were symbolic of power and strength. Without your hands, you can't act. So without Dagon's head and his hands, he's just a stump. Totally humiliated, disabled. God is showing his superiority that his wisdom, his knowledge, his strength, and his power are far superior than Dagon. Now, if you'll humor me for a second, I'm going to make a risk and, and, tell, and tell what I think might be a joke. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, if you guys don't know me or my humor, I just want to apologize beforehand. Uh, but it's an original. I haven't heard this anywhere else. It came to me as I was driving home. What did the Philistines say when they saw their idol with his hands cut off? Anyone? Dagon. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a good one. So... You're welcome for your enjoyment at my expense or uh, whatever the case may be. I thought that was a funny name for a God anyways. Verse 5. So Dagon is heads cut off, hands cut off, on the threshold. And verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Though the threshold was considered a, a kind of sacred space in a temple, uh, the, the threshold was what separated kind of the common, everyday uh, spaces and places with what was sacred in the temple. So the fact that, that the narrator describes, you know, the, the priests don't even tread on the threshold, I don't think was the, the narrator's way, it might have been Samuel at this point, of commentating on the Philistine worship or religious rituals. It was a way of further showing their kind of humiliation and what God had done to them and the suspicion now that it had created within them. Like standing on the threshold had become a taboo. We, something, something happened and, and the Ark of the Covenant messed up our God here. We don't even want anything to do with that. that that's what's going down here. And then it continues in verse 6. The hand of the Lord was very heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod, Ashdod and its territory. 
J.R. Vinoy says in his Cornerstone commentary, this verse is loaded with wordplay. It reads literally, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people. He devastated them and smote them. Notice it is the hand of Yahweh that is heavy against Ashdod. While the hand of Dagon lies broken and useless, the hand of Yahweh is powerful and active. It is described as being heavy. There's kabed in Hebrew against Ashdod. And in English, this is a somewhat peculiar expression. But in Hebrew, the word heavy is the same root word as glory, which was described earlier when uh, Eli's daughter-in-law says the glory has departed. So God's showing his glory, his might. The description of his hand being heavy, his hand is glorious and active and powerful against Dagon, who is a mere stone. His hand is cut off and in pieces. So another literary feature highlighting the power and the sovereignty of the God of Israel. No one outmatches him or overpowers him. And he's caused them to be dumbfounded and struck with tumors. Many historians and commentators believe this might be a reference to the bubonic plague, which I'm not very familiar with, but apparently there's swelling in, uh, what is the, what is the phase? The, the lymph glands are, are, they're swollen. They might look like tumors. The, the bubonic plague was carried around by mice and, and rats, which is kind of what, something that's alluded to in the next chapter. Um, others might think it'd be describing boils or some sort of hemorrhoids. What, whatever the case might be, what's happening is not good. And they're terrified by it. And it's painful. The people of Ashdod were terrified and afflicted. And they seem to recognize what's going on here in verse 7. The men of Ashdod saw how things were and they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard or heavy against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God to, of Israel there. Now Gath was another main Philistine town. And, and notice kind of the logic of the Philistine lords at this point. We don't know what's going on, but the God of Israel is terrifying us with, with tumors. The ark must not be in the city. So they're thinking, let's send it somewhere else. Isn't that what we do oftentimes with our problems? We, we don't really deal with the, the root. We just deal with the symptoms. What's, what city governments can do this with problems. It's just, let's just give that to someone else. They can deal with it. And, and the plan doesn't go well. Maybe they thought, okay, there's something weird going on here in Ashdod. Maybe it's a coincidence. Let's, let's test our theory and send it somewhere else to Gath, see what goes down there. But verse 9, but after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Plans backfiring. It's not a coincidence. This is the, the hand of the Lord is against them. So let's send it somewhere else. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another main Philistine city. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So at this point, the, the fame, the word of the ark has spread, and this has a reputation. If the ark comes up to your city, get that thing out of here. Bad things are about to happen if this ark comes into your city. Tumors, great panics, the Lord is, is causing great judgment to fall upon these cities. Verse 11. 
So they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send, the, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For, they, for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was very heavy there. Notice again that repetition of the hand of God being heavy. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of city went up to heaven. That's where we're going to end the story this week, at the end of verse 12. So what do, we, how do, what do we do with this? How do we make sense of this? Let's look at that first question. With that brief commentary, we've gone through the passage verse by verse. Let's turn to our handout. If you don't have a handout, uh, turn to your notes, create a note. Uh, we, we've been asking three questions of every passage through 1 Samuel, uh, helping us kind of see, number one, what does the story show or demonstrate about God and his relationship with his people. What character of God is highlighted in this story? What can we learn about God in this story? That second question is, how does this story connect to the larger story of the Bible? So how do we place it in the context of the larger uh, story of redemption in God's word? And finally, what does this story offer to us in regards to a warning um, or a call to action? Like, what, what is it calling us not to do or to do? You guys with me on that? Okay, let's look at question one. What does the story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? And in many ways, what this story does is it contrasts what we saw in chapter four, right? What we saw in chapter four is that God is not manipulated like an idol. He's not going to be manipulated by his people. He's not going to be controlled or exploited. You're not going to force his hand. And what we see in chapter five is that God will not be mocked by his enemies. So, God will not be manipulated by his people. He will not be mocked by his enemies. He's not going to be mastered uh, or managed. He's not going to be taunted or tamed. God is not described as this little submissive puppy. He's a roaring lion. He's fearsome and, and should strike awe and fear in us that leads to worship. The story shows us that you don't defeat God. He's not impotent. And even though God's people are seemingly defeated, God is never defeated. He will not give his glory to someone else. That's what God declares in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, God's glory being shown here in, in the judgment of Israel's enemies. And while the previous chapter highlighted the foolishness of Israel and the way they treated the ark with irreverence and and disregard, this chapter highlights the foolishness of the Philistines in treating the God of Israel like an idol, thinking that they can somehow show or think that their God, this statue Dagon, is better than the one true living God of Israel. It's foolishness. One commentator said it like this, Although God refused to be manipulated by his own people, he would not permit the Philistines to conclude that their victory over Israel demonstrated Dagon's superiority over himself. The Philistines were brought to their knees and forced to recognize that the God of Israel was more powerful than Dagon and he was at work in their midst. God's hand is the heaviest. God's hand is what's living and active. God's hand is what maintains his superiority and his honor. So how does this message and this theme and this story connect to what we see, the larger story in the Bible? And and there's two things that I want to highlight here. One, in how this story connects back to something we see earlier in the story of God's redemption, and one, in how it points forward. 
So let's look at how it points back. It points back, I think, through the repetition and the phrasing and the way this story goes down to God's redemption of his people at the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. There's many similarities, many similar words that I think the narrator is intentionally drawing that connection, that parallel that's supposed to echo God's work and his might uh, on display in Egypt. For example, uh, all the repetition of the hand of God points back to passages in, like in Exodus 3.20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. This is God speaking. Exodus 9.3. Then the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. When the, when the people of Ekron cry out for the ark to be sent away, it's very similar and similar wording to Pharaoh and how the Egyptians cry for the people to be sent away. Go and, and worship your God. It says in Exodus 8.8, 8, Plead with the Lord to take away the plague from me and from my people, and I will let the people go. <laughs> Lastly, in 1 Samuel 5.12, it describes the people that were struck with tumors and their cry of the city going up to the heavens. It's almost exactly identical to a phrase and the reversal of a phrase of Israel as their cry went up to the heavens, up to God as he heard them in their slavery for them crying out for God to rescue them. So what this shows us, I think, is that God in his grace and in his kindness is reminding his people through these parallels through Egypt that he will not be mocked. He is powerful. Even in the midst of seeming defeat and oppression, God will maintain his glory and his power. It might not be in the timing or the exact idea that they thought, but God will get the glory. God will not be defeated. Even in the midst of great heartache and pain and loss and seeming defeat, hope is not lost if you have God. God is still moving, still working, still displaying his power, still pursuing his people. He's doing this as a way of reminding of his people, of his power over his enemies. This story also points forward. Of course, if you know where I'm, you can follow my thought in this of seeming defeat leading to great victory, this points us clearly and ultimately to Jesus. Doesn't it? Just as in the story, we see Eli's sons dying on the same day. Eli dying. The ark being captured. Huge defeat and loss. The ark is gone. Them crying out, the glory has departed from Israel. See, hope is not lost. God is at work. And this foreshadows the greatest seeming defeat that becomes victory. Because as you flip the pages of your Bible towards the center, you see the gospel describe a man named Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, a kind of homeless rabbi who hangs out with sinners and prostitutes, who claims to be the son of God. And he shows he has great power. He calms seas with a, with a word. When he fights demons, there's not some sort of awesome battle where there's great versus evil. Demons sense and see Jesus coming, and they cry out in terror. This is not, like, this is a slaughter. Jesus has ultimate power and authority, and, and he comes, and, and people begin to think that this is the Messiah. This is the one that's going to free us from our captives, and, and he's going to do it now in the way that we think. But in a seeming moment of great defeat, Jesus is 
betrayed by his own people. He's mocked and scorned. This man claiming to be the son of God is treated like a criminal. He dies a death that is reserved for the worst of criminals on a cross. He's crucified next to criminals, a man who did nothing wrong. And you can imagine the disciples, the people who followed Jesus thinking, this is it. This is the son of God. This is, this is the glory that has come down, the, the image of the invisible God, the, the, the exact nature of God has come in Jesus. And yet he's dead. He's dying on a cross. He's not who he says he is. we read the story more, we know that it was in Jesus' death that he put death to death. It was in his greatest defeat that he was actually most glorified. Because in this moment, Jesus is not only suffering, but he's suffering in the place of sinners. Jesus doesn't come in this moment with affliction and pain against his enemies. He doesn't come in the gospels and strike, plague, tumors. You get what you deserve. Jesus takes upon himself what sinners deserve. Jesus becomes the plague, if you will. Jesus becomes the one who our sins and our afflictions and our iniquity was cast upon him. God crushed Jesus in our place. And after three days, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave on the third day, showing he is who he says he is. He's never defeated. He's never mocked, ultimately. His glory is supreme. Jesus is God. There is no one like him. There is no one holy like him. Nothing is too strong for the hand of God. And if we continue more into the story of the Bible and you look into Revelation, we know that just as God showed his power over Dagon, how he humiliated him and showed his power over this idol, John, in the book of Revelation, describes Jesus coming again for a a final time and humiliating, destroying all idols and those who do evil, doing a final and ultimate cutting off the heads and the hands, if you will. And this is the God of the Bible that we worship and we serve that's come to save and rescue his people. This, this, I think, leads us into question three. What does the story call us to do or not to do? I think it presents both a warning and an invitation. Oh, number one, a warning. Don't trust in idols. We see it pretty clearly in this passage, don't we? Dagon is just garbage compared to Yahweh, isn't he? I mean, what does he do? Falls face down, his heads and hands are cut off. This is not a great... Like, if you went... To see this in an action movie, you'd be really bummed out because this is just a massacre. There's no tension. There's no conflict. God's just destroying Dagon. And this shows us don't trust in, in idols. And I wanted to highlight something in, in verse 5, for Samuel chapter, oh, excuse me, verse 3. For Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. It says, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back up in his place. And, and that, that stands out to me because the, the worshipers of Dagon, the people who were committed to him, who were devoted to him, the only reason that Dagon stood was because of his worshipers. Like Dagon has no power in himself. He's propped up by his people. That's, a, that's the side of an idol. Idol has no power in itself. 
Idol, idols have no power among themselves. They, the only power that idols have is the one that's given to them by their worshipers, the ones who are devoted to it. And, and, and maybe you're thinking, well, I don't worship the God of fertility, or I don't worship a corn god. I don't have a statue in my living room that's, that I worship and bow down to. We don't go to this temple. That's not a common thing, right? Like, that seems a little irrelevant, doesn't it? Well, maybe at the surface level it does. Like, we don't, I don't, I haven't met someone who says, you know, when they, when they talk about religion or spirituality, yeah, I, I follow Dagon. You know, I abide by his, his ways. At the surface level, yes, we don't have corn gods. But when you look at the principle level, if you get beneath the surface, we do have idols. And an idol, this is how I define an idol. Uh, idols are the things, excuse me, is anyone or anything that you look to for meaning, purpose, and a sense of worth. An idol is the things that if you lost, you lose your sense of purpose. You feel like life isn't worth living. And think about that, an idol is, could be anything, couldn't it? Your job, your spouse, your family, your bank account. An idol is anything more important or more weighty, more central in your life than God. Anything that captures your affections or your thoughts, you're seeking from this person or thing, something that only God can give you. And, and what this passage shows us is that what we choose to place before us, to prop up in our thoughts, in our minds, in our lives, that those are the gods that we really serve and, and worship. And they're held up by us, our choice, our willing, sinful choices to do those. Let me ask you to think about what your idols might be. Reflect in this moment. Maybe you, you idolize food, and food is your God. Food is the God you run to when you are stressed and you can't handle it anymore. Maybe sex is your God, and, and, and you can't handle, you need that kind of love and longing, and maybe you look to pornography to feel that kind of acceptance and, and, and satisfaction that you desire that only God can give you. Maybe, maybe you look for it in your kids. And we can see this with parents that are like, all they can talk about is their kids, Right? just consumed by them, or maybe a little more, sens- like if you get a little more sensitive, like grandkids, just consumed by them, can't have a conversation apart from them, their, their thoughts, their social media posts, their frustrations resolve around their kids, can fall into this very easily. Addison's having a bad day, I'm having a bad day. Addison's having a good day, I'm having a good day. My joy and my, my satisfaction is determined on her, and that's, that's wrong. Jesus has a much better way. Path of joy in life. What might your idol be, our idols? Many of us, I think, this is maybe a reason why we don't press into community like, like, we, like Jesus calls us to, because we don't really want people to know us and see the idols in our hearts that we're holding on to. So it's easier to keep people at bay. Maybe you're thinking, I don't even have any idols. That's a bigger problem, (laughs) right? (laughs) Let's pray that God does supernatural things in our hearts, that he would cut the heads and the hands off the idols that we might prop up, that he might show himself to be who he truly is, supreme and glorious. And I pray that God would do this lovingly and graciously and in his discipline that he would cause us about, whether through 
good and bad, Jesus would show himself to be the best, the supreme, the glorious in our life. So friends, I pray that God is at work in us this morning, that his spirit is rearranging our affections and our lives, that we will not set up rival idols in the temples of our hearts and our minds to other things, our people, that we will worship God and see his might most clearly and fully, that we will be warned by this passage of what happens to God's enemies when they treat him lightly, but that we will see that because we have trusted in Christ, that God's wrath and anger and judgment has fallen fully on him, and we are loved and accepted in Jesus. If you don't believe that or trust that or are experiencing that, I would love to talk with you about what that looks like, what that means. Otherwise, I would t- invite you to take seriously the story that we find in this passage of God's judgment and wrath being poured out on his enemies. It's not a good place to be in. And let us consider, as a church, how we might worship God and view him for who he truly is. See his power, see his might, and worship him. And may we do that now as a church in this moment together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you alone are living and true and active. You alone are the one holy one. You are sitting on your throne in your rightful place, judging and ruling over all things. Father, in your providence and in your grace, you sent your son Jesus to to live a life that we couldn't live and die a death that we deserve to, to die. Jesus became afflicted for our sins. Although we have treated you lightly, we have not worshipped you and honored you like you deserve. We have fallen short of your glory. We have preferred created things over you, God creator, that you laid your wrath and your anger at our sin upon Jesus. Father, thank you that we know if we trust in this person and work of Jesus Christ, that whatever evil, our suffering, our pain, our loss, we face in our life is not because you are angry with us and that you hate us. You have poured out your anger on Jesus. So Father, I pray that we would see losses and defeats and sufferings and joy and good times as all coming from your sovereign, mighty hand for your glory. Father, may we not be short-sighted in seeing seeming defeats as proof or evidence that you are not real, that you are not for us. May we now center ourselves and our lives upon the cross coming before Jesus crucified, seeing that even when it seems like all is lost, you are in control. This was your sovereign plan before the beginning of the world. And Father, that you are for us, that Jesus is with us, and that you will see through what you have set forward. Father, I love you. I thank you for the work that you are doing in this church, how your spirit is moving. I pray that we not move from your word and the gospel. May the gospel be uh, advanced and, and distributed throughout our city and this region for your glory. We know that, yes, there might not be those who are afflicted with uh, these tumors of this bubonic plague because we have treated you lightly, but we know that there are many who around us who are suffering because they do not know you, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that you would embolden us by your spirit to be your witnesses and share the truth of Jesus with those that we interact with in word and in deed. 
Father, you be glorified in our church. We praise you and thank you now for your great kindness to us in Jesus. We love you. Amen.